Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. An entire generation spoke because he was the first person on the radio to have a voice that wasn't either BBC Posh or DJ Zany. It was this kind of sounded educated and sardonic yeah. and vaguely regional, but not particularly specific. Have you ever heard the recordings of him in the early days? I have. Because the, the ones when he does his American show in about 1964, he's based in Dallas doing a show called something like the John and Paul Show, based on his alleged association with the Beatles, whom he had never met. <laughs> You've got to give him credit for that. But he's, he speaks very much like that. And yeah. we're playing some pop records now from England, and here's the first one by the terrific, um, you know, John Lee Hooker. Not that he's English, but, uh, you know, let's play him anyway. It's just ridiculous. And then it goes into a mid-period, do you remember a perfume garden, which I remember yeah, when yeah. I would have been about eleven or twelve? When it very came druggy out. sound. Yeah, that was very much kind of, but a very airy fairy sound of kind of. Um, we're listening to Mark Boland. It's all like you know, <laughs> very twee. Did he say after one program, I'm going outside now to count the clouds over Hyde Park? Count the clouds and to hug the trees. That's right. <laughs> and he said he played a Mark Boland record, which I remember. And he said this would be Tyrannosaurus Rex, and he said it makes you feel like going to the window, throwing wide the. The, the curtains and whispering, I love you at the moon. I'm going to do that right after this. Have you heard that? No, I'm going to do it right after this. <laughs> That's right. So then, and then so that was his second stage. Finished yeah, right. With a sort of sardonic. Because he well, ended up, actually, he changed all the time. Yeah. Because he ended up with something that sounded vaguely northern again, yeah. which was sort of to, to shore up his indie credentials, yeah. wasn't it? But because. He he invented the way of talking that was invent- eventually adopted by every English rock band. They all talk in the same way. Yeah, and it's it's droll, and yes. shrugging, and it sounds immensely amused with itself, even when it's not saying when anything not. funny at all. I met a guy um, the other day who I hadn't seen for about I don't know ten or twelve years since I'd been to Glastonbury, and we had a night out. He came along with John Peel. And we went to this club in Glastonbury. And John Peel was so funny. And he's one of those guys, because he was a bit of a star, people expected him to be funny. It'd be like being Michael Palin or something now. Everything he had to say had to be some memorable epithet. And he was really good at delivering it. And this guy remembered a line that he used that night, which I can't believe I forgot because it was so brilliant. And Peel was wearing an absolutely awful old pair of baggy shorts and a Liverpool FC sort (laughs) of uh, hat and a, a horrendous kind of stained promotional T-shirt. That, that was his uniform. That was his uniform, actually, yeah. And a pair of kind of 200-pound trainers. And this guy had said to him, um, you're looking pretty cool, John. And he said, uh, I feel I look like a, a combination of a, a superannuated policeman and a badly organised pervert. You <laughs> know, badly organised pervert. It's like, not even a really, really good pervert. He's really got his act together and thought about what he's going to wear. It's just a really... But pervert, he's got up in the morning, he's thrown a load of old stuff on that and been lying around. Don't you think that indicates, though, what a performance it was? Peel. Yes. Well, I think for be- being Peel would have been, a, well, as it is for any of those kind of celebrities who are meant to be, uh, you know, able to knock off memorable maxims uh, at the drop of a hat. I think every time he stepped out of the doors, people 
it, you know, were following around like Boswell to Johnson, yeah. you know, uh, writing down yeah. people like me, in fact. Here I am, 12 yeah. years later, yeah. reciting one tiny comment that he made. Yeah. But it was very funny. No, I think he was probably quite nice to get home and put his feet up and, and uh, say nothing at all. It'll probably, probably be unpleasant to people. Yeah. That must yeah. be an enormous relief if you, you, know, yeah. you had this... Uh, Impossible had this witticism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this reputation over you. kind of uh, very... Kind to absolutely everyone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you... Get over and kick the cat. Yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. This is the word podcast. Reconvened um, with uh, me, David Hepworth, Mark Ellen, and Fraser Lurie. I've been, I've been stricken by a bout of... I won't dignify it with the word flu. <laughs> um, Mark Ellen's... Call it a, flu. Because okay. it's, it's been going on for six weeks. If anybody's listening to this... That's a Mark Ellen inflation. Well, I'm Ten not. minutes ago, we had a conversation <laughs> outside. We said it's been going four weeks. It's going two weeks. It is walked from no, the I'm office. Trying to, I'm trying to get you some, some okay, sympathy here. Fine, anyway. You know, I'm trying to move it up again. No, but I would move. If you're listening to this and you're you know, worried about your, your, your health in, in any way, or, or you know, move, move away from the computer or the, pod, or, or the iPod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's probably infectious. So, and Mark Allen's been, uh, been off diving uh, somewhere in, in, uh, in the east, east of Java. It was. Uh, and, and Fraser Lurie's been, uh, as usual, in, the, in North Korea. Yep. Uh, where I see this morning that Sven Goran Eriksson is being lined up as yep. the new manager of the, uh, the North Korean team. Yes, I can see that going down well. Yeah, for, for about a week he was going to be the manager of Sweden, wasn't yep. he? And now it's North Korea. Anyway. Um, have you done your holiday on a podcast? We, he's done a little we mentioned bit. it briefly. Oh, you have done a podcast. Done yeah. bits I'm with, out of touch. They did a podcast last week with Andrew and Eamon and Fraser, which is very good. Uh, touched on your holiday, but yeah. there may be further bits. Shall I tell you about Hey Jew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, go, go on. Yeah, hey, yeah. hey Jew is uh, not named after the Beatles song, is it? Hey, is it? hey sorry. Spell hey Jew. This? I'm not sure the spelling, but it's a small town in North Korea. I was saying. I was thought it was a song called no, no, no. Hey Jew. <laughs> of, of John Lennon's cruel comments about his man. That's yeah. right. Heiju is a small town in North Korea, and it's the strangest place I've ever been. And you've been, Fraser. To strange places. places. Yeah, I have. But it's, it's the kind of place where you, you leave your hotel at 1am, and there's not much electricity, but the street lamps are on, and underneath the street lamps are women standing there reading aloud from the works of Kim Hong-song. So it's a strange place. It's a place where at 8 o'clock every morning... You're woken up by incredibly loud revolutionary music playing throughout the streets and slightly hysterical instructions to get up and go to work. <laughs> we're uh, in this bar in this hotel in, in Heiju and we're drinking this vile, sweet moonshine called Acorn Honey. Local drink. I, I'm going to have to stop okay. you. Yeah. We're, we're going to need loads of questions here because yeah, everything leads to another got, question. No, I want to know what's in, in a North Korean bar. What's, when you look... When you belly up to the zinc bar, right, and you look at the range of drinks in front of you, what have you got? There's nothing on Feet tap. There's nothing on tap. Room. Yeah, <laughs> there'd be lots of imported whiskies, uh, Johnny Walker, various oh, right, labels, that, that kind of thing. And then there'd be local brews. Some of them, like you'll have a bottle with an adder in it, which will have some kind of wine. An, an adder? An adder, yes. Mm. So can I just say, my interjection is that anyone listening, this is, this is Fraser's idea of a holiday. Most people's yeah. idea of a holiday is they go to some... Um, you know, uh, sun-kissed beach somewhere. I, I'm not a beach person. Lie, lie on a lilo with a big pile of old paperbacks, do you know what I mean? And once every 20 minutes they top up a, a glass with martini. But he actively seeks um, inhospitable places. I do, I do. And when, having got there, finds the least hospitable place to go and then looks along a line of available <laughs> drinks. They've probably got Johnny Walker, they've got Black Label, yeah. stuff that's not going to kill you in any country. But he sees a jar with an adder in it. Yeah. <laughs> He's not like, I'll be having a shot. I'll have five fingers yeah, of that. Ice in a slice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Glass in a glass. <laughs> yeah, put the adder in too. Yeah. I just love that. And then you usually eat something absolutely shocking. Yeah. Yeah, I do. So, the, the, uh, so yeah. Now, let's go back to the story. We're, we're, we're drinking this acorn honey, and it sends everyone a little bit loopy. And uh, one of the, the guys on the tour, Australian fellow, a very nice man, is dancing with one of the girls on the tour, spinning her around the room. And he's a bit worse for wear and falls over, puts his arm through a pile of glasses and oh. cuts himself on the wrist very badly. Um, there's no artery, no tendon, but there's a lot of blood coming out. And the waitress leaps into action. And what do you think she brings out? Another glass of scotch. I've n- no idea, A cuttlefish. A cuttlefish? And she gets this cuttlefish. She gets this cuttlefish and she spl- slices it in two and then starts scraping calcium from the spine of the cuttlefish no. into a powder and stuffs the powder in the wound. Immediately the bleeding stops, as if by magic. As if by magic, and with the bleeding stops. Dancing again. <laughs> it's a, it is a miracle, the, the bleeding stops. That's incredible. And he gets cut off to hospital where he's given some stitches by a very senior doctor with a cigarette. And uh, when he gets back to Beijing, they have the wound checked and it's perfectly fine. Could, can Shelley's cuttlefish cure all known illnesses? I don't know. It's, it's the idea that barmaids know this. Yeah. You know, of a society yeah. where it's not nurses. And, and, barmaids carry, and are carrying a live cuttlefish yes. in their back pocket. Yes. And is a there, knife. Where's there a cabinet on the wall where they smash the glass and you, you get out a cuttlefish in <laughs> no. case of any barroom bar room injuries? Because they ought to have some, one of those in some of the fighting pubs in Chapel Market, shouldn't they? They should, yeah. They, they, the, the thing that Fraser told me about being in China, which I've been, been going round my head ever since, he was in uh, Beijing round about the time of the great patriotic uh, demonstration, which was on telly and in the papers over here, the most massive, um, you know, open-air march presentation involving millions of people. Yeah, it's the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party. There you go. Now, Fraser, I, I said, did you see any of this? And you said, no, I kind of missed it. I was there when they were rehearsing, yeah. yes? And what did you tell me about when they rehearsed for it? They empty the city. They empty the city. Beijing, How many people in Beijing? There's a lot of people in Beijing, and it's, it's surrounded by three ring roads. And three, a few million. A few million, and everyone inside the second well, ring road so and bad. inwards. Even they were so bad, they emptied the city, but they just people... They just, you weren't allowed to watch. So anyone in the second ring road and inside <laughs> was told to get out. Yeah. And if you had a job which meant that you couldn't leave, they posted someone there to make sh- with you to make sure you didn't look out the window. Now, imagine that. That's, that's an image but, but, okay, of social control. You tell people not to look right, at Right, here's my question window. to you. If you did that in England, of course, um, you know, there wouldn't be a sufficiently terrifying penalty to, to uh, persuade you not to stay behind and look. But presumably, if, if, you, were, if, if you did stay behind, and, and you, what would happen then? You were hung by your toenails no for about a month? I have no idea. Probably be nice. Fed only cuttlefish and added <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you'd risk it. You I, don't, risk it. I don't think you run up to policemen and flick from the, the V and run away in Beijing, do you? I don't think that happens. Does it? I, I, I don't think. I don't think it does. I want to know about the, the, the food. Was there anything? Uh, uh, we have this tradition. I ought to say in there. It's a pathetic tradition. It's been going on for <laughs> since I can remember in the word office. If anybody goes on holiday, they have to bring back um, really the least palatable or the most challenging yeah. and original food stuff for consumption of their colleagues, and. Both Fraser and I have excelled ourselves. I think Fraser brought back a, a, a kind of uh, sweet that I think is, is, is derived from a fruit called the Dorian. And anyone listening who knows about Dorian, Dorians are so uh, noxious 
that in some places they're actually banned on the underground. They're banned uh, from many hotels. They're banned, banned from, from most airlines. The smell of a Dorian is so repulsive. The taste, actually, I put it even worse. But uh, so he's bought back f- uh, uh, sweets made of Dorian. And I bought back. So they give them to small children, do they? And <laughs> I think so, yes, yeah. to, to make them eat. Vegetables to, to wean them off. And yeah. salads. That's a really good idea. <laughs> yes. I bought back. Uh, please, Dave, you see these lying around. Don't try any. They're, they're, I thought they were biscuits wrapped in individual banana leaves and skewered with a piece of bamboo, right? And when you try one, as I did last night with my youngest son, um, I'm still not sure if I resolve the conversation I have with the person in the shop, as I speak absolutely no Indonesian, they spoke no English, which is, are they biscuits or are they tobacco? <laughs> I don't know, because we eat them. And he just said, hmm, sort of tastes like dust. And they're either the inside... I just had one oh, before I came in, yeah. Oh, do you think? It tasted like dust. <laughs> See, you brought what they are. It's full of dust. It has a texture of dust. It tastes halfway between coffee and uh, something you might find in the bottom of a guinea pig pen. Oh, what is that? I paid three dollars for that. You know, these are Malaysian dollars, so it's not an enormous amount of money. I just took a load of notes into the bank on my way in this morning. Rupiah, which is the currency in the southern part of Malaysia, I took in four thousand rupiah. And stand there, proudly <laughs> waiting for a tot up. How much she owed me? Put that in the And the girl, just, the girl just burst out laughing. You know they speak to you in the bank, and they're actually on a on a on a, on a, um, a kind of a microphone yeah, yeah, system, yeah. so everyone in the bank can hear it. And she's just crying with laughter. I say, "Bring me my pile of cash, young lady, and wipe that smile." She said, "It's twenty three pence." <laughs> and mountain mountain notes was in a, in a wheelbarrow. Exactly, it's yeah. like the Weimar Republic. Yeah, because uh, I remembered that uh, the brief period I did have some root beer. I think we bought a, a couple of uh, cans of Tiger beer or something, and they're about one million each. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, while you've been away, Mark, yeah, you, yeah. you've not had any access to news media or uh, at all. Yes? I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've been on a, a very, very remote um, uh, Indonesian island, tiny little island, somewhere not, not far near Borneo, probably not from Australia actually. Uh, which looked like a kind of child's drawing of, 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 of a desert island with just a little little beach and then some palm trees. And underneath those palm trees... Was there was, a bald was, bloke in a vest looking like something out of a cartoon? That's, that's exactly it. Was, was there Went v- a message vol- in a bottle. V- voluptuous blonde. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that. that's right. Paradise Island, etc. And I... Uh, yeah, so we only got one piece of news. I mean, we were deliberately avoiding news, but only one piece of news got there in 12 days. And I know no more. And that was a member, I think, of Boyzone had come to some rather gruesome end in a yep. flat in somewhere, I don't know. Died. But that's the interesting pop fact. That is the only bit of news. That was considered the most important okay, news so, item. Well, you're virgin territory now. For well, experiments I'd like to try. I know nothing at all. These are eight news stories that have occurred while you've been away. All right. Okay. okay. Are they true? You're making them up? One right? of them oh, right. is not true. Oh, this is very good. Okay. Oh, this is very clever. Because I think this is the way the news is going. You know, sometimes you look at headlines on the web or whatever, you think, that can't be real. But anyway, pick a number between one and the other. Okay, well, I'll I'll do in in, in order. I'll do number one. Okay. Uh, Amy Winehouse recently had a breast augmentation operation to to make up for what she'd apparently lost during her her lost weekend. See, I can't answer that. We're coming across really badly. There's more. Yeah, yeah. She's recently had a breast augmentation operation... A few days after the breast augmentation operation, we haven't talked about this phrase, I don't think. This is the greatest story, you know, in months. She thought her breasts were going to explode. 
<laughs> While on, on a night out. Was, was there a, a ticking We've all noise? Had that <laughs> she demanded, obviously, to, to, that her driver take her to the hospital immediately. Which is really going to explain in the car. Well, only that she was out somewhere. She thought, well, you know, just you know I feel a bit jippy. I think my breasts are going to explode. Um, she demanded to be taken to the hospital, but stopped off, stopped off on the way to pick up chicken at Nando's. Doesn't worry about detonating the Nando's right. uh, the retail outlet, does she, with her exploding boobs? True or invented? Well, I, the fact you've given away the fact that you said this is the great story, unless you've really prepared a brilliant <laughs> set piece between the two of you, I'll have to say that's probably true, although it's, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Isn't it? Mind-boggling. She picked up the Nando's chicken, she said, because I don't want to eat hospital food. Well, you know, in a hurry, in case she doesn't, doesn't hospital food. she doesn't have private care. Okay. Well, I don't think. I don't think you know. If you, if you, you get a menu, find somebody at three in the morning in you know, in Old Street who, who can deal with exploding bosoms. I, I don't think you can go private. I probably think you probably have to. Do you think this will mean hold up a casualty? A, a whole kind of rage for you know when people ring up and try to get off work because they're you know they're ill and they're incredibly complicated and this cranked up fantasies. This is the next thing now. It's the next thing. You know, you'd be getting calls from. People say, like, I can't come in today. I think the breast are going to explode. It's, it's kind of one, it's one up from having flu, yeah. isn't it? You know, in terms of you wouldn't want to sit next to them. You no. Know, if you thought that they were zoomed. They would say to you, yeah, you know, you're going to rack to detonate <laughs> while I'm reading the proofs, do you? <laughs> that would be, you know, be your fault, you know. Okay, move on to number two. That's a classic story. Okay, right. Carly right. Simon is suing Starbucks for closing their record label just five days after her record on their label was released. Is that because it sold so bad? The resulting poor true? performance means she's unable to now to retire. Has to change all her plans. Is that true or is that made up? Um, it's, <laughs> it's like you're shooting stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, gosh, I, I don't know. Carly Simon, I know she's still going, isn't she? Um, she's about what, to what's peculiar about that is it implies that the release of this record... Um, in her mind, was going to earn her so much money that her... Well, they give um, her a big advance, I think. Oh, right, but an advance is an advance, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you still got to pay okay. that back. It's not a permanent loan, you know. Um, I suppose it's probably true. It's absolutely it, true. It, yeah. Because basically, they'd had their adventures. This is the Hear Music label, or whatever the label was called, that Starbucks started. Yeah, McCartney They did the McCartney record, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah, it did yeah. quite well. Yeah. And then they did a bunch of others, did, did nothing, and the recession hit, and Starbucks thought, we've got enough problems, we don't need a record label as well. And so they, they canned the record company just as their record was coming out, which is, that means the record's effectively, effectively dead. But she sued them for $5 million. Watch this space, we'll see if we get, she gets away with it. Top American TV presenter David Letterman has announced, on, confessed on, on his TV programme that he slept with attractive young female producers on his programme. This despite him being married. And as he confessed this, the audience laughed all the way through. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why would he... What could possibly prompt him to confess that? Somebody thing? tried to blackmail him over it. Oh, right, He right. called in the authorities, and, uh, you know, they, they found out who was blackmailing him, and they thought the only way to deal with this thing... Deal with is it publicly. ...is go on my own programme. A and a whole true. section of his programme, five minutes long, wasn't it, Fraser? Yeah. It's consummate do you, mean, do you mean to tell me he turned this into a richly comic model? He didn't or, or that they were laughing he because they didn't realise it was serious? Well, he, he didn't make it clear that it wasn't a rich comic model. Yes. 
he kind of it was a little bit ambiguous the way he told it. So people were laughing so, well, without that, thinking. That makes complete sense to me. So he's sitting there doing some kind of immensely amusing satirical debunk of whatever the Parliament did the day before or whatever. Um, then he sits there and goes straight into a line about the fact. No, that he just I'm, says, I'm "I want to tell you about an odd thing that happened to me recently," and you knew it was going to be slightly different, but you didn't believe. You know, he said, "And this person accused me of having sex with people who work on my program," and the audience kind of laughing as if, oh, that's a joke. And then he goes, well, let's be honest, I have had sex with people who work on my programme. And then the audience is vaguely embarrassed, slightly on the back foot, aren't they? They've been told a little bit more than they want to know. It's absolutely astonishing television. God knows what his wife did to him when he got home, you know. But um, yeah, so that's still rumbling. Do off. you think he hadn't discussed it? <laughs> that would be classic. Yeah. And apparently, hi one darling. Of, one of these Sorry produ- that, you know. one of these producers that he's been in the Mark Allen parlance upending. <laughs> <laughs> yes, listeners, there is a there is a coarse side to Mark Allen. Sorry, uh, yeah. One of these it's producers. Quite a funny phrase. Though. It was it, he takes great frivolity. He it? takes her on uh, yeah. on holiday with the family. You're kidding. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Yes. You see, multi-millionaire TV <laughs> presenters in America get away with anything they want, I think. Basically. Was that all right? He, okay, here's a new dimension to that story. I think that Mrs. Letterman may well be up to speed with this. Oh, okay. Don't you think? Mrs. Letterman might just think, I tell you what, what can you do about it? It's like, maybe he's like M- Michael Douglas. Maybe he's a sex addict. Yes. <laughs> do you remember Michael Douglas was just <laughs> upending absolutely <laughs> anything that moved? And then he went to court or something. It was some kind of, wasn't there a divorce? And he said, look, I've got, I've, I've got a medical certificate here to prove that I'm addicted to sex. Which point everyone, oh, you poor old thing. It's like all 18-year-old oh, males. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's frightful. How awful yeah. for you. So I think next time you see Mrs. Letterman, I think she'll be covered in more jewellery than you've ever, you know. She seen, will be. Since it's Marie Antoinette. Um, uh, the Michael Michael Jackson estate. Michael Jackson estate has just released the first posthumous Michael Jackson. You're throwing in a joke here. This is any story involved with the Michael Jackson estate. It's impossible to call. They put out the record. A day later, they got a phone call from Paul Anko, who pointed out that he had written this song with Michael Jackson in 1983, (laughs) and that it had been previously released in another version, and that Jackson estate obviously. Court, in a rather embarrassing situation, said, Tell you what, Paul, you can have half the money. Just immediately. You know, what was the song again? Well, they call it This Is It. And uh, it must be some old demo that's been kicking around somewhere. But he had written it with Paul Anker in 1983. The name of the song wasn't This Is It, surely. Well, they, they, must have, they, they must have, they must have post-rationalised that. And or they it. took a bit out of it that is... Okay, they, no, they because his, his tour, the tour that he, he never know, got to was called This Is It. it. Yeah, so, yeah, oh, yeah. That's an unbelievable piece of... <laughs> You know, how, how you know how useless are the people supposedly around Michael Jackson? That they, they didn't know, know that. that. Staggering. Oh, Paul Anker on yeah. the phone. The man who I think I'm right wrote the English lyrics to My Way, didn't he? I, I think he did. I think he probably did. So Paul Anker has a piece of some fairly, yeah. <laughs> fairly valuable, well, uh, fairly valuable stuff. Carly Simon will be on the phone begging to borrow a few thousand dollars. I'm sure. True or false? True. Uh, true. Barack Obama is duetting with Willie Nelson on a recording of In the Ghetto, which is coming out for Christmas, to benefit underprivileged kids. Barrack Ball. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring here, David, and say, that isn't true. The why, the why, why I'm saying that 
is because there is... Sorry, I've gone off mic. Because there is a contemporary story about somebody raising money for charity with Christmas records, which I think was launched today. Oh, well, you so know. I reckon that isn't true. Have I rumbled it? <laughs> it isn't true. Oh, But it might be true next week. Tune in next week, it could be true. Oh, right. Oh, so I thought, of, you know, Barack Obama, Willie Nelson, Blood in the ghetto... You know, black, white, you know... Hands across the water, the white double the water, piece. country market, urban If market, it wasn't for that, the Bob Dylan released a record today for the Christmas market, I, I would have gone for that. But okay. was, I mean, sorry, that now means the, the next three will all Okay, well, they are let's do about it. Come on. Cheryl Crowell is one of the judges on The X Factor, where all the young, untried performers have to sing live, yeah? That's part of the test. Cheryl Crowell is going on The X Factor this weekend to plug her new single. Is she singing live? No. Or is she miming? She's mining. Can you imagine and that? She's a judge. I don't... <laughs> she's there's no justice. There's just, just us. And, this, and then go behind the desk and you know have a go at somebody for uh, for their flat vocal. I'm sure somebody I think that's will, pretty will, That is absolutely staggering. Um, uh, on top of his one million pound salary from the BBC, Jeremy Vine gets two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year for just introducing the film reports and panorama. That's good work. That's that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Just stands there outside television centre and goes, worrying story from, you know, wherever. And uh, we sent to the camera crew. Ka-ching! Yeah, I I went home and counted an enormous pile of cash. That's incredible. And another strong drink. And uh, and, uh, And finally, a piece of Elvis Presley's hair, which was cut off when he entered the army a long time ago, is going up for auction this week in Chicago. There are, you can buy uh, Actually, Elvis Presley's hair off eBay. Because I read something in one of the newspapers I read this morning, which said that I think it was the guy, was it somebody who ran the fan club or something? Who it died was somebody, yeah. someone who had an enormous. Yeah, no, he's dying on his deathbed, apparently. He turned to somebody near him and said, Just feel in that drawer down there, would you? Down the bottom. Yeah. And somebody goes, Oh, what's that? He goes, Oh, it's Elvis Presley's hair. You know, that's. Uh, a, fr- a friend of mine has some. Verification. A friend of yours has got some of Elvis Presley's hair. Bought it off eBay from Elvis's barber. Comes to a little bag with a little uh, tag on it, proclaiming that it's Elvis's hair. I'm not sure what that it is. What colour was it? Because Elvis's barber, I, got, I don't want to spoil this, but Elvis's barber would probably be cutting hair all day long. Yeah. Right? And he only cuts Elvis's hair every, I don't know, once in a Yeah, know, quite a while ago. Yeah. The, the barber collected this hair, obviously, knowing it would have some worth one day, I imagine. I'm sure he did. God, what, what would that fetch? A lock of Elvis's hair. I think my well, friend paid $40 for it. Only, only, I think Jeremy Vine or Paul Anker <coughs> would be able to afford to buy it. Only <laughs> And Carly Simon wouldn't, wouldn't be able to put in a bid. That's going to be our new measure <laughs> of yeah, wealth. It's, it's imagine, I wonder if Jeremy Vine could afford one of those. <laughs> yeah, doing cost years three vines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this is a word podcast. That is brilliant, Dave. I, mean, um, I enjoy that quiz. So, you know, that, uh, that brings you up to speed with what's going on in our crazy... In our crazy culture. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Um, We asked, before we did this podcast, uh, for a bunch of, if anybody got any questions they'd like to put before the panel. And and people came up with that. I did. Okay. And and, uh, Kenda Material. People have such catchy screen names, don't they? Kenda Material wants to know, what's been your most disappointing gig and why? And he says, attending, not performing. And he says, in his case, it would be Van de Graaff Generator. Well, I've never risked the disappointment of Van de Graaff Generator, Kenda, so I couldn't say. I, I'm going to, while you guys are thinking, I'm going to leap in with oh, mine. I know mine. Because I've been to so many terrible things that, that you just wipe them out of your mind. The, the, um, the one that I do remember walking out of was a really odd one. 
because it was featured somebody I really like who hadn't been written before at that stage. I went to see Boz Skaggs at the Rainbow. I don't know when this would be, 1977, 78, something like that, coming off the back of Silk Degrees. And they just started, and they were terribly smooth and terribly you know, accomplished and so forth. And I just thought, after two, three numbers, I thought, this is not hitting the spot. This is not working. There's something going on here. There's drugs or there's whatever, you yeah. know what I mean? The band are not in the same room as I am, and I can't bear it. So I just turned on my heel and left. That was mine. It happens. Do you know, I just can't think of that. That's terrible, isn't it? Mine's the Go classic on. a classic bag gig, I think, which is David Bowie at Wembley Stadium on the Glass Spider Tour. Oh, it's the oh. Glass Spider Tour. That's a, that was bad. And I, I walked oh out God, on that. Oh, that was bad. That's a good one. Yeah. It was all right. I don't remember much about it, apart from the fact that I believe the band were hidden, and instead you got kind of choreographed dancers, including Tony Basil, acting you out the songs. Oh, well, I remember they did appear underneath, a, a, obviously, a giant kind of glass spider. Yeah. Very, very badly. And uh, you were disappointed for that? Yes, you were hugely disappointed. I thought you'd have got enough value from the spider. I, I, I seem to remember either the, the set being terrible or the... The versions of the songs being terrible. I can't remember which, but I remember leaving early and being terribly angry at having spent days. Were well, there a load of people well, going towards Wembley Park Station? Yeah, there? there was. There was people were very vocal in their disappointment. I can remember reading a fantastic piece. There was an interview, in fact, with somebody who worked on the, on the um, production stage, stage construction and stuff of, of, of road crew of that stage. They said of that tour. They said at the end of the tour, they built a giant bonfire and they burned the spider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this yeah, was put to, put to David Bowie in an interview, and he, he had to kind of uh, wryly concede that perhaps it hadn't been his... In fact, directly after that, he did a kind of greatest hits package. Yes, he did, yeah. Really, I'll tell you another, so going back and saying, I'll tell you another sorry. oddly disappointing one. Sometime in the 80s, the Rolling Stones, like they do from time to time, played the 100 Club in Oxford Street. And the 100 Club is oh, yeah, tiny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they probably get 200 people in there. It's tiny. They did it as a benefit for the 100 Club. And... And, you know, I'm one of those people who says, I don't want to go and see anybody in a huge stadium. And then people go, oh, here's your opportunity to go and see them absolutely back to their roots. You know, they'll be absolutely brilliant. So I did, and I queued, and I got in, and I went to see the Rolling Stones in the 100 Club, and they were rubbish. <laughs> they were rubbish, because they'd forgotten how to play in a small place. It wasn't in their nature at all. Yeah, everything was projected to some kind of mythical horizon, you know what I mean? And again, it was the same thing. They sort of weren't engaging the audience. So they weren't having any inter inter interaction between between the actual group members. Well, they were all just projecting through yeah, the imaginary Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, well, the, the perennial criticism of the Rolling Stones, which has been has been rehearsed many times on the Word website, wordmagazine.co.uk, is they've been rubbish ever since Mick Taylor left because they stopped listening to each other after Mick Taylor left. Yeah. They, they're just kind of doing their I, stuff. I went to see them in Shepherd's Bush Empire. I remember this, I was like 15 years ago or something like that. And, and they were actually terrific. Oh, well, okay. And I can remember, and what was so funny is that people had got themselves positioned, uh, because it's such a small venue, uh, directly in front of the Rolling Stone they particularly wanted to see. And me and my friend Anton Corbyn, the photographer, in fact, who'd just done their cover, uh, um, decided we wanted to go and stand on a Keith's microphone. And I found those just enormous queue of people. Virtually, we got, eventually got a under, under Ronnie Wood's uh, microphone because there was nobody there. Nice. And, Ron, and they came on an hour later, remember, because Ronnie Wood was, we were told later by somebody working uh, with the PR, in fact, I shouldn't be saying this, that Ronnie was so pissed he couldn't go on such a... And sure enough, we came on slapping him and feeding him Absolutely. coffee. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I speak as somebody who <laughs> saw the Rolling Stones at Network and saw... The time of the, the, that very long story, which I'm not going to tell, about them coming on 
uh, an hour late, and Keith Richards being pushed, somebody put a guitar around his neck and pushed him down the stage, which was a gigantic lip, uh, tongue rather, it was a tongue, it was in, in the huge sort of Stones, uh, you know, logo, inflated, and him watching him stumbling fully 75 yards, <laughs> absolutely out of his head, occasionally clanking a discord. You know. So those are the you know, most disappointing gigs. Uh, moving on, Stuart Evers wants to know, who's the best pop star come novelist? Which is a good question. And I wish you could think of an immediate response to it. Uh, Do we not become pop star like Stephen King? Well, I, uh, I think Stephen pop King is a novelist come pop star, isn't right. um, But um, I've not read Nick Cave's books. Very but good. I'm told they're very good. Both very good. Both completely different as well. Yeah, so yeah, he's very good. I'll take his reputation, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that. Yeah. Is there any more you've tried? Bruce Dickinson's uh, The Confessions no, of the Morning Bone Race. What's it no. like? No. Don't, don't know. Oh, I right. met Bruce Dickinson the other day at a party. What an absolutely first rate fellow. Do you know he's a, you for sure you know, he's a commercial. Uh, we uh, were, Fraser and I were only talking about this a couple yeah. of weeks. A, fr- a friend of mine went on a flight piloted by Bruce Dickinson, and halfway through the flight, the, the door opened at the front of the plane. He walked backwards and gave every single passenger a pair of Iron Maiden slippers. Oh, no! <laughs> no! There I thought you were going to say, you know, like that right stuff moment when, when the reassuring <laughs> voice comes. We're cruising now in 36,000 feet. We're just to Berlin. That's right, and suddenly, yeah, take your daughter to slaughter. <laughs> no, he was amazing. He told me that he'd flown his group uh, on their last uh, tour. He'd flown, he'd flown them around yeah, the world he, himself. He did, yeah. In their own Iron Maiden aircraft. And thus, they could visit places that would not be commercially possible uh, otherwise, because they had all their gear with them, their backliner, PA system, everything. So they played all sorts of really out-of-the-way places that had never experienced the excitement of live rock music. Well, Fraser and I were talking about Bruce Dickinson a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? And I was, I was almost inspired to write a column, uh, the title of which was going to be Why are heavy metal stars almost never tossers? Yeah. Because if you meet them, they usually absolutely sound individuals, aren't completely they? Completely sound and, uh, and completely lacking any pretension. Yes. Because the great thing about them is that they make this... This is a terrific generalisation, but I think it is true, is that they make the division between the character they inhabit on stage and inhabit to write songs and their own real self. You know, they know this is a, this is a cartoon. <laughs> it's just a cartoon. It's kind of a ultra-violent, sort of written in big technicolour letters or whatever it is, or it's a black magic or it's satanic masses or whatever. And, and most of the audience are aware it's a cartoon as well. It's, it's just everybody's in agreement. And then they go back to their perfectly normal lives and their little ranches somewhere with their yeah. chickens and their vegetables. No, you're absolutely right. I, I should Very probably write that. Um, and uh, people asking, should they get Adam Bowie? Uh, wants to know, should he get Bob Dylan's Christmas record? Now, um, I was on the radio this morning, Mark, telling the nation about... Uh, I know. Uh, about Bob Dylan record and desperately trying to avoid coming to any conclusion about it at all because the only thing I learned about Bob Dylan in years listening to him is what you think day one there's no resemblance to what you think a year later or two years later don't you think that's true? yeah that's very true I, 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 I've heard that record. I think, you know, I, somebody asked me to, to um, say something about it this morning, and I refused, because I thought... It, 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 is that it, why they rang me? <laughs> no, 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 they did! No, no, it's not. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Okay. No, no. No, it was, the tele- it was BBC television, the BBC television oh, show. Oh, oh tele- television. And I refused. I refused. I didn't want to do it, because I thought, you, you can't have... A discussion about oh, yeah. something like that, which is a big subject, because the point about that Dylan record that no one will write about 
is that Bob Dylan, throughout his entire career, has had this great philanthropic streak where he has, um, um, you know, written about the plight of the, of the dispossessed and the unfortunate. And, of course, most significantly, his comment at Live Aid, which you and I, Dave, were standing on the TV, do you remember, with, with Bob yeah, Geldof yeah. watching, actually, as it happened. And he said, and I thought it was an incredibly controversial thing to have said at the time, but, of course, people realised fairly soon afterwards that he had a point, which is that why are we channelling all this money to the, the um, impoverished of Africa when right on our doorstep there are a load of farmers who can't pay their own mortgages, you know. And uh, immediately Farm Aid, in fact, was set up yeah, yeah. as a result. So, you know, the fact that he has recorded a load of songs in order to raise some money for people who can't afford to buy a Christmas dinner is entirely in keeping what he's done all his life. And but the other thing that people are going to go at is, is obviously the fact that he's done uh, a load of old sort of, you know, Christmas hymns and things. I can't remember what's on this... Uh, well, the, the Christmas it's not Winter Wonderland. It's, it's, there it's is, more, yeah, there's more, stuff like oh, that. Santa Claus is coming to town or whatever. But then there are um, there's stuff like there's there's Come All You Faithful. Come All You Faithful. There's three or four. But obviously, obviously he's done that because you can't go out there and hope to make money uh, in a charity record unless you're either yeah, but he's really going to well make money. He's, he's going to make some. He's going to make some, isn't he? Okay, he might make some. It's a pretty in terrible a couple of record. I mean, if anyone listening has heard this, it, it does sound pretty shocking, but they might be right. I, I like it. But you like it, it's good. Oh, but then again, on. you drink, you know, stuff no, with no, adders in it. Tell and, us, you know, tell Well, I, I haven't, I haven't really liked a, a Dylan record since Desire, and I think I really like this one. I think it's, it has charm, and that charm is something that's lacking from Dylan, for me at least. I think he sounds like he's having fun. Really? Yeah. Well, fair enough. God, that's, well, that's very bold. You're not saying that just to sort of... Take up a position. Here. No, I'm not. And, you know, I'm, I'm a man who doesn't like Dylan version 2009, but I think this kind of works. It's like a weird, grisly uncle singing, sitting on his knee. You know? I think <laughs> the, the old death rattle. Yeah. The thing that gets me about the reaction to all this is that, uh, is that on the day that this record appears, everybody, every, every organ of the media lines up to go, what the hell has Bob Dylan done now? How can Bob Dylan kind of trifle with, you know, his legacy and what we think of them? Uh, you know, and I, I got an email just now before I came in the, in the, to do this podcast. Somebody asked me to be on the radio said, has he finally sold out with this? And I thought, what a ridiculous thing to say. You know, Bob Dylan's been married to records for nearly 50 years. But presumably... Uh, 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 the notion of selling out is it's just a completely threadbare concept. And also, this is a bloody charity record. Yeah. You know, selling out, selling out might be getting a huge sum of money for letting Microsoft use your your your, your music on an ad, which he's done as well. I well, think. you should have you know, a yeah, Victoria's Secret well, lingerie catalogue. Somebody's going to give him ten million, you know, ten million dollars to go and you know, shill for the Republican Party or or Playboy magazine or whatever. Yeah. That might conceivably yeah. be accused of selling out. But the idea that you know, by making a record which the thing that offends people about them, about this record, is this. And it comes through all the hit media and it also comes through, through the Today programme. Which is, it's warm and cosy. Yeah. They don't like it because it's warm and cosy. They're uneasy because it's warm and cosy. If you was dark and edgy, they'd be absolutely fine. Yeah. Well, that's so, it's an what's, what's happened in the last 40 years is, is the mainstream has become dark and edgy. To the point that they can't take anything that isn't dark and edgy. That isn't, you know, ambiguous and strange and shot in black and white and vaguely savage. You know, this is just, it's a corny old Christmas record. Like Bing Crosby used to make. Absolutely. Like Jim Rich. Like Louis Armstrong used to make. Yeah. And those are the people that Bob Dylan sees himself alongside. He's not looking at Robbie Williams or Morrissey and thinking, you know, can I go toe-to-toe with those guys? No, do you remember David Bowie, little drummer boy, piece on earth? I mean, people had a pop at him, didn't they? Because he was actually filled with Bing Crosby by a crackling Yule log. 
And let me tell you, in, in the fullness of time, Bing Crosby will, will be recognised as a greater artist than nearly all of these people. Actually. Yeah, and I, but I, I think, I think uh, uh, another problem is that no, people just can't let people develop because in their own heads, they got off the bus at a certain point. And in the, media's, um, in, the, in, the me, in the media context, a lot of people got off the bus and Bob Dylan at Blonde on Blonde. They actually couldn't take John Wesley Harding. Well, you know, yes. there's a few things in the seventies they quite like, but they broadly would like to think of Dylan as being this guy. Well, blood on the tracks, design. Yeah, possibly. They yeah, want things that got loads of words in them. Yeah, that sounds as if he's in pain. That's what they want. Yeah, yeah. that's the Bob Dylan they like. They also want it to be like a, a yeah, subject for academic it's be debate. Mystery, yes. and it's got to be suffering. And there's no mystery or suffering apparently on this on this record. And also they kind of, but nobody ever thinks of it from the point of view of the artist, which is the artist has got to get up in the morning, and somehow keep this whole thing moving. <laughs> you know, they, they've got to entertain themselves, you know, they, and the, the idea that you, that, you, that you, and the people who have gone back, of course, and, and played to exactly what people want, are the people whose careers have folded immediately. You know, why would you want someone to carry on being exactly like they were on their first album, you know? But it's just hilarious, you know, being asked, do you think he's finally done it this time? Yeah. You're thinking, he's outlived all of us. Yeah. You know, creatively, commercially, in terms of his legend. Who are any of us? You know, to say, oh, Bob, you've done it now. Yeah. You've really... You've gone yeah, too far. You've gone too yeah. far you've this You've gone and spoiled it all. You've, you've gone Ruined and spoiled it, it all. You've taken all your records you know, out. Those Christian records you made that we all thought were terrible, and now we quite think, you know, that, that some of them is, is very good, you know. Well, that was all right, but this time you've gone too <laughs> far. That must, you know, that must really make Open him Open up trouble. your copybook. I think you'll find an enormous blot. Blot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> okay, you go and, you know, I don't know, make, make some indie record or something. So um, that's uh, what, what other questions have we got? People asking what we think of mobile Spotify. Well, I, I'm using it, and I think it's uh, I think I'm it's not using good. it. Sorry, I'm not using it yet. Phrases not there. I don't yet. know what it is. I've been in well, it's, Indonesia. It's, it's, it's mobile Spotify. If you can imagine that, yeah. you have to you have to pay a premium for for it. Yeah. Somebody asking Matt wants to know if it, I'm going to have to take issue with your question here, Matt. But he says if you could not work in the music industry anymore, what would the members of the panel do for a living? Professional well, golfer. I'm not in the music industry. I like, you don't see yourself in the music industry, Mark. Do you? I don't. No, I don't. Know publishing or no, media, publishing. Or whatever. Okay, so but Fraser would be professional a professional golfer. golfer. Yeah. Okay. Right, Mark. A full-time dreamer. That's a, sorry, that's a terrible... I think that's both the same thing. <laughs> Is that from the same film you're quoting? It's a pathetic allusion to a rock film. I, God, I really don't know. I don't know. I'd like to be on the lecture circuit. I'd like to be lecturing. I'm a university lecturer. I don't know. I, I absolutely Maybe a shoe shop. Maybe a shoe shop. <laughs> we are on the chapeau shop. Yeah. Um... Well, God, the, <laughs> the, the credence has fallen off his <laughs> chair. My God. <laughs> Mark Allen has fallen off his chair. off a chair. Which probably brings this podcast to a, to a close, uh, at, at, you know, to, at a suitable moment. Then I don't have to tell anybody what uh, what I would do. Okay. Can I'll we ask you? Do you know? I don't, actually. I don't know why I went with the question, really. Probably like you. Novel? Just Is there a novel in you? Oh, no. I haven't got the patience to write a novel. I'm writing a novel. Neither am I. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Have you, ever, have you ever started on, on a book? No, we, we uh, asked that. Go on, have you? Close to the microphone. I've got two or three ideas for books. Uh, one, one really good one, which of course I never wrote. This which fiction. was a children's story. No, this, oh, this okay. was a fiction, yeah, it was a children's story. All right. Yeah. And you never started? I never started. I used to sit, we used to go on holiday the same place in, um, in Normandy, and uh, when the children were quite small, and the children were you know, upstairs in bed, and that brief moment where their mum would be just uh, ruffling their hair and maybe reading the last few lines of a, of a Roald Dahl story, and I would go down to the sports bar in the, um, in the square down below and order the first of a succession 
of um, uh, glass of pression uh, ale. And watch, and there was hot air balloons used to come over this place. It's called uh, Balawa. Uh, and there was a castle owned by a member of the Forbes family, as you know, enormously wealthy. And this guy used to have an annual hot air balloon convention. And I used to watch the hot air balloons. And a combination of the setting sun, hot air balloons, one of which was a giant castle itself, uh, a replica of his own castle in Balawa. <laughs> Um, you know, there was a, a Sphinx, there was one, uh, into the, uh, the actual Sphinx as a hot air And I used to sit there and think, this would make a great children's story. Based on, in fact, a film I saw only two days ago, uh, coming back from Singapore uh, on, on the aeroplane, where you got a 13-hour flight, and I finished up watching Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying <laughs> Machines, which is exactly what my story was based what on. What airline were you on that you were Singa- watching? Singapore Airlines. Is Brilliant. That, and those are the kind of movies yeah, yeah, yeah. that they show. Yeah, and the That's other, hilarious. Oh, yeah. yeah they were those like, Magnificent Men. Oh, yeah. The other Terry one Thomas. Was, Terry Thomas. It's Eric Sykes. simply good for Brilliant film. film. I Sarah Miles. I, yeah, yeah, Sarah Miles. Oh, I saw it again not long ago. What's so brilliant about it, I'm sure you can remember, because I hadn't seen it since I was about you know, 14 or whatever it was when it came out, is that, um, is, is that it's the most um, exact racial stereotypes of everybody. Yes. So the French guy turns up, do you remember? And he's a massive crumpeteer <laughs> who's constantly disappearing to haystacks with good-looking women, you know, waitresses, you know. The Germans, of course, which is hilarious, are these sort of, you know, virtually autistic, sort of, you know, um, uh, obsessively regimented group who have to kind of march out to their own, you know, national anthem and uh, and, and have to read and fly the aeroplane by looking at an instruction manual, you know. Um, the Italian is a guy who has uh, 27 children and a long-suffering yes. wife. Do you remember Bambini? Do you remember? And, no, I can't remember the rest of them, but they're all just like, incredible stereotypes. And Terry Thomas steals the show, of course. He's brilliant. And the other film I saw, which, again... Spell Terry Thomas for me, Mark. Oh, it's, it's... I don't know what his Christian name was, but his surname was Terry Thomas. Which is hyphen Terry hyphen Thomas. Terry hyphen Thomas. But uh, I, 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 another film I saw, when you're on a 13-hour flight, you're very grateful for a film that I think is three hours, five minutes long. This was A Star is Born, starring Judy Garland. Oh, they're written? And oh, James Judy. Mason. Yes, oh, right. Any, it's three hours long. It's three hours long. They've oh, obviously God. put in some sections of it, because it's just still shots, but you've got the uh, audio, but you've got stills from bits that were lost, and they've now found and reconstructed. So, 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 I've only flown on Singapore Four Airlines once. And uh, and I, I don't think I watched any films. Are you saying that they have a they have a policy of programming old movies? Well, they've because got a, they're not controversial or, or no, they've got. I mean, they've got. You can sit and watch you know reruns of um, that Russell, uh, that Mitchell and Webb look. You know, oh, and, okay, uh, so Eddie right, Izzard. Yeah. But they have, they have the Hollywood current Hollywood block. Oh, they have the, yeah, so oh, okay. a very good frat movie called The Hangover, which I thought was hilarious. This is funny, this actually. is just a. Okay. Yeah, but you they have, have a classic kill. movie, okay. thing, right, which is where I saw Judy Garland. And I have never seen Judy Garland uh, in her, what she would have been, I suppose, probably, this is 1954, this movie, so she would have been in the 30s or something. And of course, is she, it's incredible. She is so. Liza Minnelli is the absolute spitting image yeah, of this yeah. woman. There's a bit where she does a whole sequence in a black wig. Um, she's got that kind of tremulous lower lip which she hits the top notes her dancing is exactly the same her you think they were related physiology you think they were related unbelievable going back to your racial stereotypes the the old uh, what's the what's that old joke about uh, you know the ideal europe is is where you know the british run the run the police the germans run the railway the you know the french do the cooking and the italians love us <laughs> and the nightmare europe is 
know, yeah, Italians yeah. run the police. Yeah. The Germans do. The English do the cooking. Germans do the cooking. Yeah, right. Germans <laughs> And the French, are whatever one I missed out, you know, working out. That's I think it holds very good. It really is. <laughs> that could be, be another version of Magnificent Men. Therefore, yes, we should absolutely perfect. Anything else to say? No. Okay, uh, magazine on sale now at your local yes, it is, news I agent. I still haven't really seen a copy. It's out, isn't it? The one we've yes, it is. Yeah. It's been out over yeah. a week. Yeah, yeah, oh, right. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. good. And, uh, and you can f- follow up. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, you can seek counselling at <laughs> wordmagazine.co.uk. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. 